Hey everyone, welcome to Life and Things Podcast. Um, so I came on here today because I learned something quite interesting and new last, uh, yesterday. Um, I was watching one of my, my YouTubers who happened to be mentioning inflation. And, you know, I don't think that most people understand what inflation is, especially in the newer generations. And hey, even honestly, myself, I mean, I'm still learning more and more about inflation over the, the last few years than I had in my previous 20 years. So anyways, what I heard was that, you know, inflation obviously is pretty bad around the world. And I've looked up the numbers and really the U United States is still fairly low in comparison to a lot of other countries. We are at, I believe, 6.8% the last time I looked at least. That's what it said. Um, the YouTuber I was listening to said 7%, but I think that was for, for Canada um, because that's where they're from. So what they mentioned, though, is that they've changed the way that inflation is calculated. And it, the change occurred right before 1980, which is you know a little bit before I was born. So I never would have known. You know, honestly, unless I would have looked into it, which I would have not even known to look into it. Um, so what I've learned is that what we consider inflation today does not at all look at the price decreases that companies said they were going to have by rolling out certain technologies that were supposed to actually lower the price of goods and services because of technology um, advances. So, you know, back in the 80s, when we really became really, really big and strong into trying to do the technological advances, you know, we started figuring out how to create conveyors that were able to move product from one location to another. Um, you know, communication got super easy. Uh, just a lot of different computers and everything have just been worked on so heavily over the last 25, 30 years that where we were back before 1980 is completely different to where we are today. And we needed less people to do the work, um, less hands, less bodies in order to move product because of a lot of technological advances. And what the company suggested is that though in the front end, it was going to cost them some money. In the back end, it was supposed to save money for them pr to produce these goods. And in turn, that was supposed to also help save money for the consumer because, you know, now we're buying product that takes a lot less money to, to produce. And anyways, so changes were made um, to the calculation of inflation that right directly before 1980 that kind of removed some of this, these things that we would have been looking at. And I think part of that probably was so that these companies could con continue to make more and more and more and more and more money, which obviously then would be putting even a bigger and bigger and bigger gap between the 1% really wealthy people that own these companies and those of us at the bottom dwelling end who are just trying to make ends meet and have to work hourly in, you know, sometimes not the best conditions. So I think there was definitely a reason for them changing it. And I don't think that it was for our benefit. I think it was for theirs because now, you know, they're still expecting the same amount of money 
even though they're spending less money. And then inflation continued, right? So I looked back, you know, first I actually talked to my to my parents to kind of corroborate this with them because, you know, this is a YouTuber not much older than me, if not maybe even a little bit younger than I am. So I wanted to just ask them if they knew anything about this change. And they were like, oh yeah, we do actually. And it was like, okay, so this was real thing. This definitely happened. So I looked back and did a little search. I basically just did a little Google search about inflation by the older measure, just to see if it was out there. Now, I haven't yet found the actual calculation that would show what the difference is. I've found the newer calculation, but I haven't found where it's changed from the eight, you know, from 1979 to 1980, which is where that change happened. <clears throat> but I did find this old um, story that was written and published on, what is this, NBC or CNBC website. The title of it was Inflation Actually is Near 10% Using Older Measures. That's the title of it. And this this specific article came out in April of 2011. So this is, you know, going back about 10 years and they already were talking about how inflation is actually way different today than it was back then. And really, if we were to go by the old numbers, which were more accurate, we would have been in 2011 at 10% inflation, which is higher than we are today. So can you imagine what our inflation would be at now? if you're looking at the prices of our consumer goods. So here's what they said. They said after former Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker was appointed in 1979, the consumer price index surged into the double digits. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about consumer um, price index as well because they use that number to calculate inflation. All right, moving on. Causing the now revered Fed chief to double the benchmark interest rates in order to break the back of inflation. So they had to raise interest rates in order to help remove the inflation. So either way, they're kind of like sticking it to the man and taking money from the consumer because, you know, we're all dealing with interest as well as with the inflation numbers. So either way, consumers are still kind of losing out, but they decided to make inflation less and just increase the interest rates, which is not unique. They've done this in the past. Using the methodologies in place at that time puts the CPI back near those levels. Inflation using the reporting methodology in place before 1980 hit an annual rate of 9.6% in February, according to the Shadow Government Statistics newsletter. Now. What they're talking about, there's actually um, a website that you can go to. And it was. Shadowstatistics.com or shadowstats.com. And they actually will show you what the shadow statistic is, which is based off of the old numbers pre 1980. Which. Right now, if you're looking at it, based off of 
the old number, our current, okay, based off of our current number, we're at, you know, 6.8% according to that. But really, according to this, we're closer to like, I don't know, maybe 12% right now. Well, as of last year, 2021, um, we were closer to 12%, not 6.8. So it means like really close to double, double what we currently are at, according to that website. So therefore, the way it calculates the CPI in order to account for the substitution of products, improvements in quality and other things, Back, backing out more method implementation in 1980 by the BLS still puts inflation at 5.5% rates and getting worse, according to the calculations by the newsletter's website, shadowstats.com. Near-term circumstances generally have continued to deteriorate, said John Williams, creator of the site, in a new note out on Tuesday. Underlying reality, reporting generally will continue to show higher than expected inflation and weaker than expected economic results in the months and months ahead. The month and months ahead. The pay site and newsletter by William, an economic consultant for the last 30 years to companies, has gained a cult following among blogger hungry bloggers hungry to criticize these days. The mission statement of the newsletter, according to the site, is to expose and analyze flaws in the current U.S. government economic data and reporting, net of financial market and political hype. So, you know, our government doesn't want people freaking out. I think that every single person on earth, if they don't know that, are just completely naive. You know, they're not going to tell us like, okay, guys, go out there and panic and freak out and riot. You know, they're not going to tell us to panic because the crazy ass people go out there and riot. <laughs> people lose their mind in the whole like frantic, chaotic, whatever, right? A lot of people do. Not all of us, but a lot of people do. So they don't tell us when things are getting real bad. Instead, they try to make it look better because, or they don't tell us at all because they don't want to see the whole world, you know, collapse on in on itself quickly. They'd rather it go slow and painfully. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, not really, but yeah. So, so it's interesting to know that, you know, they've changed the way that they're reporting these numbers, which is making things look far better than they really are on paper. And yet you and I, the normal natural consumers are feeling it when we go to the grocery store. And just as an example, <clears throat> my father who's retired um, he works part-time, um, just sort of helping to re rework things on shelves and, you know, reprice things and things like that, however, whatever's needed. You know, so he informed me the other day that they just did a price hike and this is in a regular grocery store. And so like, for example, Mentos, and I'm not going to probably tell you exact cent of what this thing costed, but it was like at $3.75, let's say which is pretty close to what he said. Um, it was 375. Well, they were putting through a price change that made them like 438 or something, or 435. So like that price increase, I mean, if you do the calculation, I mean, it's 
It's massive. It's massive. And so that was just one item was like the tall bottle of Mentos. <laughs> so now, you know, you look at all the other products and if you really pay close attention, you're going to be seeing these hikes going on right now that are just astronomical, you know, price hikes of 75 cents or more on something that doesn't cost more than a few dollars right now as it is. I mean, that percentage increase in price is huge. It's huge. And then if everything price increases like that, most people are not going to be able to sufficiently pay for their for their products that they normally would buy. So it's going to be a big, big pain point on us consumers, those of us who actually work really hard for our income and, you know, aren't aren't CEOs or, you know, presidents or whatever making, you know, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year, you know. So, all right, let's move on. So then I decided to kind of look up inflation, generally speaking. Um, so here is just a little info for you on inflation, just, you know, because I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to say it and have it be wrong. So I'm just going to read this article, which is by corporatefinanceinstitute.com. And they say inflation is an economic concept that refers to increases in the price level of goods over a set period of time. The rise in the price level signifies that the currency in a given economy loses purchasing power, which basically what they're saying is, is that your dollar, so you hold up a dollar bill, 10 years ago, that dollar bill will be able to buy you more because the dollar financially meant more than it does today. So the value of the dollar was more than it is today. So you hold up the Mentos and you say, okay, here's the Mentos. The Mentos technically haven't lost or gained any value. That's not what this is about. That thing of, of Mentos still is worth the same amount as it was 10, 15, whenever it was created. Um, but the dollar, the dollar's value no longer is worth as much as it was. So it can't purchase those Mentos anymore like it used to. So that is what inflation is. It's the devaluation of the dollar. The causes for inflation, they say in short term and medium term, remain a constant issue among economists all over the world. However, there is a consensus that in the long term, inflation is caused by changes in the money supply. So what they mean by that is that they keep printing. They keep printing more dollars. So there's more dollars in circulation. The more dollars you put into circulation, the less that $1 bill is worth. And that's what they're saying. So how is inflation calculated? Well, it's calculated using the Consumer Price Index, also known as CPI. So let's just quickly take a little hiatus over and tell you what a CPI is. A CPI stands for Consumer Price Index and measures the ongoing change of the cost of goods and services. 
This can include almost any good and any service like transportation, medical care, food, and any type of merchandise that you can possibly purchase. Many use it to predict and determine the cost of living and the economic growth in certain areas. This is one of the most popular ways for professionals within the economy, within the economic and financial industries to locate inflation or deflation periods within the economy. So they say that when calculating the consumer price index, the final consumer price index represents the average change in price from the consumer will spend on a basket of goods and services over time. So how is it calculated? They say they gather the price of the common goods from some point in the past. And this point in the past can change. They can determine that, oh, I don't want to use 2012 anymore. I'm going to use 2018. So they can change that point whenever they deem necessary. So with that being said, the CPI, it changes with time. It's not constant. It's not going to show you a really good comparison from year to year to year because they're using different points in time. So they collect, then they collect all the prices for the current products or services. So they go out into the market and they figure out what everything costs now. And and then they compare them to the past and they put it into a little calculation. So they divide the current product price total by the past price from whatever point in time they decided to choose and whatever that end up ends up being. So let's say it used to be 216. All right. So let's say it used to be 176 and now it's 216. They'll divide now, which is 216 by 176 and that'll equal 1.23. And so 1.23 is now the CPI. Not quite, because then they take that number and they multiply it by 100. So it's 122.72 would be the current CPI. And they have to, you know, convert it into a percentage, which means they have to minus, subtract the 100, and it equals 22.7%. And that is the final number that is presented according to this on the CPI. So they take the, what everything costs now, divide it by what it used to cost, multiply it, or um, yeah, multiply it by a hundred and then subtract a hundred to get the current percentage rate for the CPI, the consumer product index. All right. So that's, That's that piece. Now, as you can tell, um, CPI, again, it's not constant because they can decide, like uh, it says here, let's say that the CPI for a given national uh, nation was 210 at the end of 2017, the base year, and 220 at the end of 2018, which is the current year that they're saying it is. They could decide to then put the 2017 down to 2016. That number would be completely different now. So it's not a constant. 
whatever year they decide to go off of. So inflation is calculated by taking the current CPI minus the previous CPI and dividing it by the previous CPI, multiplying it by 100. So let's say the current CPI is 220 and the previous is 210. You basically take 220 minus 210, divide by 210, multiply by 100, and that makes you get a number of 4.76%. And that is the inflation number for that scenario. And that is the way that they currently, they currently calculate inflation. Now, once again, this has changed, and I have not yet found the old calculation. The only thing I found is shadowstats.com that kind of gives you that shadow number, which they say they pull from how they used to do it. So what are the effects of inflation? The effects of inflation is decrease in unemployment. So when the price of goods increases, so will revenues and subsequently profits for private enterprises. The influx of capital will enable companies to expand their operations by hiring more employees. Now, I don't even think that we are fully as a country in the United States even calculating our unemployment rates correctly, but there's a lot of unemployed people right now. It also should decrease the real value of debts. And they say in here, it says, as explained above, inflation is associated with decrease in, in interest rates. Low interest rates will cause the value of debt and related debt instruments to decrease. Now, this is only the case for those of the those people who are able to either um, change, you know, call up their insurance, you know, their credit card companies and see if they can't reduce their interest rate or you know, also with housing, because most people have locked in interest rates, they'd have to then spend the money to to refinance in order to get the lower interest rates, which costs money. It's like a huge scam. They should just let you lower it, but they don't because everything costs money. All right. So there's that piece. Um, I also found this article that talks about the consumer index uh, rebased to 2018. So this is where I found out that, and this article is from 2022. So they before had a base year of 2012 and now they've decided to bump that base year for the consumer price index up to 2018. So, you know, our numbers are now going to be different than what they were when they were using the 2012 base. And this was on philstar.com under their business section. And the title of it was Consumer Price Index Rebased to 2018. So that's what I was talking about. They can change that base date, which then will completely change the consumer price index. So it's not like a, a number that will be 
it, it's got it's got more than one variable. I'll just say that. And when you have more than one variable, because <laughs> if they can change that base number, it's now, in my opinion, a variable. You know, so yeah, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. So the whole CPI number, um, though, it's just the way they do it. Um, historically. Ah, okay. So this is interesting. So I looked up inflation on Wikipedia also. I know that Wikipedia can be written by anybody. <laughs> so it's not exactly the best thing to use, but I just wanted to see what they said. And it says here that inflation refers to general progressive increase in price of goods and services in the economy. So even though deflation, yeah, it's, it's all about increases, increases in the cost of things. And with that, it, it causes a reduction in the purchasing power of the money because the money no longer is worth what it was. And they said that here, the opposite of inflation is deflation, a sustained decrease in the general price of level goods and services. The common measure of inflation is the inflation rate, the annualized percentage change in the general in price index. In history, so they have a history section, they say in history, large infusions of gold and silver into the economy had led to inflation. Now, nothing, I'm just going to say right now, nothing is tied to gold. Um, I, th I think anywhere, because our, our dollar used to be tied to gold. But back in the 70s, they took the dollar off of the gold standard because, you know, they were only allowed to have as much money as the as much money as they had gold to back it. So they took it off the gold standard. So now they could just endlessly just print that money, just print that money. And that's where the, the inflation has come from so heavily. And they say that, you know, when gold and silver was put into the economy, <coughs> inflation would happen. Well, that makes sense because at that time we had, we still were mining for gold everywhere. I mean, there was really, so much gold still left to find on earth but since then you know those areas of finding gold have been harder and harder to come by and gold is not something that is always produced it takes forever for gold to be produced and they even say that you know there's there's articles that i've seen that actually talk about how in order to get more gold into our economy we'd probably have to go mine um, asteroids because of the way that gold is formed takes really high pressure and temperature and almost like that explosion type of effect, which is, you know, where asteroids come from. So they'd probably be laced with it. Um, at least some of them would be. And then of course, if you watch the new movie, um, don't look up, <laughs> they talk about how they wanted to mine the precious metals and stuff on the asteroid, which is why they didn't want to shoot it down. So there's truth to that, that it, there is truth to that. There is precious metals on asteroids and comets, at least a lot of times. All right, so inflation is felt worldwide too. And by the way, because all of our 
our financial institutes are kind of global now. I mean, they're all kind of tied to each other that if one country goes through, through burdens, especially some of the more powerful countries, then some of the rest of the, you know, the rest of the countries are going to feel some of that. All right. So I talked about the shadow government stats on shadowstats.com. And that shows again, what, how, you know, the, the method they used to use to calculate inflation. So I want to talk a little bit about stagflation just because, you know, these are just, I hate to tell you this, but when I left college or left high school and college, they didn't really teach us this, you know, they didn't teach us much about inflation. It was maybe like a 15 minute conversation and you left it probably known about as much as when he came into that conversation. So stagflation is characterized by slow economic growth and relatively high unemployment or economic stagnation, which is the same at the same time as accompanied by rising prices. So where they say inflation, typically you see low in unemployment and you see, you know, lower interest rates. Well, in stagflation, it's the opposite. Everything pretty much just goes out of whack. It says that stagflation refers to an econ economy that is experiencing a simultaneous increase in inflation and stagnation of economic outputs. Stagnation was first recognized during the 1970s when many developed economies experienced rapid inflation and high unemployment as a result of oil shock. The prevailing economic theory at the time could not easily explain how stagnation, stagflation could occur. Since the 70s, rising prices during periods of slow and negative economic growth have become somewhat of a norm rather than a, an exceptional situation. So they're saying that stagflation is almost like a normal thing now, which is really kind of scary. So the term stagflation was first used in the 60s during the time of economic stress in the United Kingdom by um, politician McLeod while speaking in the House of Commons, talking about inflation on one side and stagnation on the other. He called it stagnation situation, which later got called stagnation or stagflation, which then led to the emergence of the misery index. This index, which is simple, sums the inflation rate and unemployment rate, serving as a tool to show just how badly people are feeling when stagflation hits the economy. So they, they have all kinds of information with this poor economic. They say that stagflation theory, this is funny, ugh, because of historic, historical onset of stagflation represents the demise of the dominant economic theories of the time, economists since then have put forth several arguments as to how stagflation occurs and how it redefines the terms of existence, existing theories to explain it. So they look at oil prices, which is one theory that states that stagflation is caused by a, when a sudden increase in cost of oil reduces the economy's productive capacity. They have another one that says poor economic policies cause it. And you know what? Wow, that's, you know, not bad. 
The gold standard. Other theories point to monetary factors that may also play a role in stagflation. Nixon removed the last indirect vestige of gold standard and brought down the Bretton Woods system of international finance. So that's where I told you we went off, we went off the gold standard. So, by the way, it sounds to me like you really could combine all three of these and it would probably explain a lot of the reason why we're in stagflation. It goes into the difference between the two, which I think I have already pretty much gone over. Um, what causes stagflation? It's characterized by slow economic growth and relatively high unemployment or economic stagnation, which is at the same time accompanied by rising prices. Generally, stagflation occurs when the money supply is expanding while supply is being constrained. Sound familiar? I have what they have the question, what is the cure? <laughs> which I it's interesting. Is there a cure? It says there is no definitive cure for stagnation. The consensus among economists is that productivity has to be increased to the point where it can lead to higher growth without additional inflation. This would then allow for the tightening of monetary policy to reign in the infl inflation components of stagnation. Oh, and then it also gives some examples of stagflation, things that you would see during stagflation. So an example of stagflation in, is when government prints currency, which would increase the money supply and create inflation. While rising taxes, so while they, rise, they raise the taxes, which would slow economic growth, resulting in stagflation. So what, what do we have going on today? What have we had going on for years? Sounds very, very, very similar. All right. Now that I've gone through that pretty heavily, um, I also want to bring up the fact that we've got lots of really huge companies out there, like really huge, not, not like, oh, I've got three locations huge, but I mean like trillion dollar companies that you know, don't help this situation. And let me explain. I'll, let me use an example to explain. That's even better. Let me use an example to explain why I say this. An example of this would be like the company BlackRock. BlackRock is an American multinational investment management corporation based in New York City, founded in 1988 and its initial reasoning for being open was for risk management and fixed income institution asset management. Well, since then, they have now expanded globally with 70 offices in 30 countries and clients in 100 companies. Now, this is off of Wikipedia, so obviously, you know, hopefully they're getting this information off of their website. I've gone to their website. I've learned a little bit what this doesn't. And well, it does actually tell you this, which I thought was really unique. You know, it goes through the whole history of the company, which may or may not be 100% accurate, but it also says ownership and transparency. So they invest by investing clients, 401ks, and other investments. BlackRock happens to then become the top shareholder 
and many competing publicly traded companies. So they are the highest shareholder in Apple, Microsoft, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase. They're also the top in almost every single huge food manufacturing company, technology companies like Apple. So if you go and you look up, like pull up Apple, Apple shareholders, and there's always, there's a website that does this for you. And it'll literally show on every single one of them that BlackRock is the top shareholder, meaning that they own close to 50%, if not more than 50% of the shares for that company. Now, shareholders own the company, right? So that means they own more than half of all of these companies, like almost every company out there, which is crazy. If you look at their revenue, I mean, obviously they have put a lot of jobs out there. So in 2005, let's say, for example, it states here that they had 2,151 employees and now, and as at least as of 2020, they had 16,500 employees. And their revenue has gone from a one point or one, 1,191 million US dollars up to 16,205 million US dollars. So they are making mass amounts of money, mass amounts of money. They're, they're literally in so many different things right now. And so that takes me to, well, I found this other article. I'll go there first before I, it takes me to my final point. So this is, and this is ha ha ti ha ha, but at the same time, you know, this is, there's some truth to this. And this is from www.vw.com. And the name of this article is BlackRock, the secret world power. And they say that the U.S. financial crisis may officially be over, but, and this is as of Oh, sadly, this doesn't tell me when this came out. So that's why I don't really like this form of things. But, you know, there are conflicts of interest, which they state inside of this, <coughs> that BlackRock is involved in, which in the, in the business world is a no-no. They are literally all over the world, which is probably one of the biggest problems, you know? And so the other part that I want to talk about is that, you know, there's who owns BlackRock. Now, we all know that, the, we, that we've got these people who founded the company and blah, blah, blah. We know who those people are. But who is it? Who is it that's running this company right now? 
most of those C- CEOs are not the ones making all the choices. They're the ones being told by the shareholders of that company what they need to be doing. It has to be, especially for the top shareholders, are the ones who typically have to be in, in agree agreeance for any type of large financial dis, uh, decisions that happen within that company. And so who, who is it who's really pulling the strings at BlackRock? So let's look that up real quick because, you know, I don't 100% know that answer. And there's a lot of people talking about this, by the way. So I've heard, I didn't even really know much about BlackRock at all. But, okay. So it says here that the highest shareholder (laughs) the top shareholder for BlackRock is Vanguard. Well, guess who the highest financial owner for BlackRock is? Or for Vanguard? BlackRock. And then also they say that the secondary highest shareholder for BlackRock is BlackRock. So not only does BlackRock have the most amount of shares in Vanguard, but also BlackRock is a secondary owner of their own company with the second highest amount of just, it's wild. It's like this huge web of all these top financial companies just sort of owning each other and themselves. And then it's like, okay, so they're all making the decisions together for, you know, how many different companies? It's a lot. It's a lot of different companies that they are the ones calling the shots for. So with that being said, let's talk about monopolies for a second. Not the game, but what an actual monopoly is. A monopoly is an exclusive control by one group of the mean of the means of producing or selling a commodity or service. So that's number 1. Number 2, a company, group or individual that exclusive has exclusive control over a commercial activity. Well, that kind of sounds like these companies, right? Vanguard and BlackRock having are the top two companies that have the highest amount of shares in pretty much every freaking company out there. So it kind of sounds to me like a monopoly. <coughs> All right. So with that being said, that's kind of what I wanted to go over today was just, you know, just how twisted things are. I mean, growing up and, you know, up until about this year, well, until not that long ago, maybe a few, a year or two ago, I really thought that every company was on its own. You know, I mean, I know that there were shares out there and there was stock market, blah, 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 blah. I I don't think I really quite comprehended how intertwined everything truly was. 
And a lot of these companies are global companies. So that means there's global spread to the control that these few companies have on our planets. And they are also the ones who have a lot of different, they work very heavily with the central banking systems, which at one time weren't even in existence. The central banking systems on their own. So for example, here in the United States, ours is called the Federal Reserve. Upon researching this, which I started doing probably a good five years ago, maybe four years ago, um, I learned that the federal banking system actually was not a part of the United States at all. It wasn't a part of our government or anything. It was actually a third party owned situation. Before the central banking system took over, our treasury department within the United States government is the one who kind of controlled all of our financial situation, our currency, how it worked, all of that kind of stuff was controlled by our own government. But then something happened. And I think that, you know, I think it was directly after a war that all of a sudden the central banking system swooped in because a lot of, a lot of countries were going through close to bankruptcy due to the cost of war and the central banking systems came swooping in and said, Hey, let us save you. And they put in place these systems, these financial systems, which are actually debt-based systems. They're not meant for wealth per se, or at least not wealth for the majority of us, right? They're meant for the, the top 1%. And so if you look at any dollar bill, whether it be a dollar bill, a $5 bill, a $10 bill, a $2 bill, you'll notice down at the very, the far left corner, underneath the United States Federal Reserve System stamp, it says, this note is a legal tender for all debts, public and private. So these are actually not just currency, they are debt notes. So we are exchanging debt notes within the United States which is why we never see our financial system get any better. They never wanted us to pay off our debts. They wanted us to continue to incur debt, which is why they started to put insurance companies into place and, and things of that nature, because they couldn't have proper inflation if they didn't have a larger handle on the financial institutions to begin with. So they took over the financial central banking system took over now most everything is controlled and slowly this this came about right all of a sudden everything was controlled by insurance companies a doctor for example who used to be able to practice any type of medicine he wanted with his with his md right with his doctors i graduated from medical school kind of thing um they could deliver babies, they could do surgeries, they could do house calls and regular family medicine, they could do, you know, children and pediatrics, you know, they could literally see any patient that they wanted and conduct any type of 
treatment that they needed to with their patients because they, you know, there's not, nothing limiting them. Then the insurance companies came out um, saying like, hey, you know, in order to practice every different type of medicine, you need to have a separate insurance policy that covers that specific thing. So they created insurance policies for doctors who wanted to do family medicine, which is just like the, they come in, they're sick, you give them medication, they leave. Then they gave a separate one for every different type of surgery that you might do. So if you wanted to do ear, nose, and throat, it was a separate policy than if you wanted to deliver babies. So now in order to do everything, you need like 10 or 15 different insurance policies and no doctor could afford it. So they had to choose, which one am I going to take? And then to make it even easier on them, they decided to make it very diverse when it came to educationally. So you had to choose while you were going through school. Okay, so you want to be an MD. Great. Where do you want to be an MD? Do you want to be an MD in ear, nose and throat? Do you want to be in family planning? Do you want to be in family medicine where you just do the general medicine stuff? Um, do you want to be a surgical person who deals with broken bones and this and that? Do you want to be a trauma doctor? Do you want to be, you know, so you had to choose. You had to choose. And then you had to finish your education in that small little bracket of medicine. And if you wanted to get more because you wanted to switch, you'd have to go back to school and go through the stuff for the other section that you wanted to get into. But then you'd have to pay insurance for both, which is why a lot of times now um, doctors are working instead of in their private practice, they're working for hospitals or other medical organizations because now then that company has the insurance policy that covers them instead of them having to buy the insurance policy themselves. Now, granted, now they're working for a salary like the rest of us versus them making their money off of their patients that came to see them and off of their practice. Now their practice is owned by a big conglomerate like like Redmond or like uh, United, um, not United, but like the different healthcare companies that have their hospitals and their doctor's offices. <clears throat> so like a lot of changes have happened and, you know, which also made it more costly for the patients because now, you know, doctors had to charge more so that they could pay for their insurance policy that they needed to have in order to even treat patients. And then in order for us to start actually paying, insurance companies are like, oh, well, we can get help here too. We'll just give you a health insurance policy. We can um, wheel and deal with these different doctors and they can decide whether they want us to cover their you know, practice so that people wanna come to them because then they get these lower rates and only have to pay their deductible and their copay. So insurance then became a thing that every single person on earth who wanted to have medical care that was as affordable as possible, they would have to get an insurance policy as well, which is how insurance companies really did vastly take over. And inflation has helped it along its path the entire way. So let's look at that for a second. Insurance companies. 
All right, let's look at Blue Cross Blue Shield. is a very, very common medical health insurance. And let's just take a quick little peek to see So Blue Cross Blue Shield started out as a nonprofit, it turns out. And then slowly they've been converting to a for-profit. Hmm. Yeah, I can't find any information. I'd have to look this up probably later instead of just sitting here in silence. But Blue Cross Blue Shield, I mean, they're a huge, huge company that offers insurance policies for medical. And though they started out as a nonprofit organization, you know, they've transitioned to become a profit organization. So what I'd really like to see is who owns it or who are the shareholders if they have any. says the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association is a national association of 35 independent community-based and locally operated Blue Cross Blue Shields. Huh, that's interesting. So they're saying that it is a private insurance company Hmm. Okay. <laughs> they have picked up a lot along the way, though, because once they were just Blue Cross Blue Shield, 
then they picked up like all these other organizations along the way, like Anthem. So I don't know. I think that the insurance companies are also making bank, but I think it's mostly because inflation has made it necessary for people to, and it's not just inflation though, because inflation is also being caused by the fact that, you know, we became a society of lawsuits, which is what allowed the insurance companies to even get their stronghold to begin with. And the insurance companies requiring everybody to have insurance just to practice things like medicine. Now people have to make more money off of medicine, which increased the price to the consumer who had to go and see the doctor. So instead of an office visit being, you know, $15, $20 without insurance, then it was like 120 or now it's $300 to see a regular family doctor for one visit. And that's not including if you need medication, because then you have to buy those, which if you don't have insurance for that, that can be upward of seven, $800 for just one prescription drug. If you, you know, depending upon what they prescribe to you. So it's phenomenal how this whole thing has transitioned into the monster that we see today, where it's almost impossible for people to keep their head above water. unless they're working for a company that offers them insurance at a decent rate, which has become almost impossible too, since Obamacare. Um, I mean, I remember when Obamacare took over and they're like, oh, this is going to be bad. And I'm like, okay. And then all of a sudden, because I was already working and I had insurance where I paid like $25 a pay period. My pay period was every two weeks for insurance where I had a $500 deductible and my copay was 10 bucks. So that was my insurance right directly before Obamacare. And then as they unfolded the different layers of Obamacare, that price just went up and up and up. And so now for a single individual, you know, you're lucky if you, you know, you're not paying $150 per pay period for just one individual. Now, if you have a family plan, it's closer to $300 per pay period. If it's every two weeks. So you're paying five to $600 a month for a family plan for insurance so that if anybody gets sick or injured in your household, that you can actually go to the doctor without putting yourself into bankruptcy. And that is really, that's where we are today. That is where we are today in our country because of this debt-based system that we allowed to be unloaded into our country back in the, I don't know. It was, I think when the federal banking or the federal reserve came into play here, I believe it was right after world war two or not world war two. Um, Oh, yeah. The Federal Reserve was born December of 1912. 
And so that was World War One, or sorry, World War Two. <laughs> Don't even listen to me. I'm having trouble even reading. So, so yeah, World War basically caused this whole thing. But then if you look into why wars happen, it just blows your mind as well. I mean, listen to some of the theorists as to, you know, what transpires to, to create the war. And it almost seems like everything is almost planned in order for things to happen the way that they do. And one would almost start to suspect that, you know, war is a form of control. If countries, I mean, that's why we have all of these TV shows about espionage and all that jazz. I mean, there is a place that all of that plays in this world that kind of makes things unfold the way that they do. And if you think for one second that nothing's planned, everything's planned. There is a reason for everything to happen. And somebody wants, there's somebody out there that wants everything to happen because it will cause them to have either money or power. Money or power. All right. So I hope you guys enjoyed this information. Uh, thank you for listening. And if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, if you want me to look into anything, please let me know in the comment section. Um, you can also email us at lifeandthingspodcast at gmail.com. Um, and please feel free to take a look at our website at thriveforwards.com, which there's a blog. <laughs> So, all right. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day and thank you for listening. Until next time. Bye.